Amen. Good morning, family. How are you? It's good to see you. Get your Bibles out. Open to Acts chapter 17. Boy, it's hard to not say 1 Corinthians. We'll be back in 1 Corinthians. We'll pick up where we left off in a few weeks. In the meantime, we're going to uh, be talking about this issue of four. So, as you get your Bibles open to Acts 17, um, let me just say a couple things. Thank you for those of you that participated in marriage night. It was wonderful, and uh, we're grateful for all that God will do through those times. Also, you know, with this time of year comes uh, the fall festival, and around here, that's a big deal. So maybe, you know, we have a lot of new people here who think maybe aren't familiar with fall festival around here. So the last time we did fall, we were able to do fall festival, we had between 1,500 and 2,000 people come. What we do is we go out to uh, one of the local schools. We set up on the football field and all the different community groups in the church uh, build a game or some sort of a uh, activity for the kids to participate in. And then we give away tons and tons of candy and tons of food. And we just have an amazing and wonderful time. And uh, God really blesses it. Now, we need, to, we, we need literally a truckload of candy in order to do this. And in case you didn't know, there's a shortage of everything. And now I found out there's a candy shortage, which I don't think there is. But it doesn't matter. They will now only let you buy a certain amount of bags of candy per visit. So which means that if we were going to, you know, we need like 975 visits worth of candy to do this. So, so next week there will be uh, cans out all over the church. So what I need you to do is whenever you go to the store, you go grocery shopping, you go to Dollar General, whatever you do, grab some bags of candy whatever they'll limit, we'll let you buy, and put them in your car, and then every week bring them and give them to us because we need to uh, store up a gazillion pounds of candy to pull this off. And also, um, you know, one of the things about the Fall Festival is that everybody knows is that I have the best game, and it's just always been that way. And my hope for years has been that because my game is so good, other people would be inspired to try to defeat my skee-ball game. But nobody seems to be able to do it. And I actually have other games that I want to build, but I'm waiting for somebody to try to beat this game so then I can crush them with the next game. But no one wants to do it. I'm trying to inspire you to greatness. Try to beat skee-ball. That would be a great endeavor for you to do. Um, but nonetheless, uh, because there's so much animosity towards my skee-ball game, which I don't really know why that is, I'm very humble about it, that people have started indoctrinating children against skee-ball in our church. Can you believe this? So I want to show you a video. This was the, a few years ago when we were you know, before the COVID came. So watch this. Music for the people making music for the people. Just know it's all a lie. Everywhere we go. Light shine bright. Everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. Music for the people making music. 
This is the only world we know And for now this rental's our home If we gon' be a reflection Gotta make this dirt rock glow Just so you know Light shine bright everywhere we go Music for the people to illuminate the show Light shine bright everywhere we go Music for the people, making music for the people Light shine bright everywhere we go Music for the people to illuminate the show Light shine bright My favorite part of the fall festival was the Gaga Pit and helping out. Face painting and all the candy. Uh, basketball. What was your favorite thing? Gaga ball. Baseball. It was definitely the concession stand. Helping you with the baseball. Definitely face painting. My favorite thing was definitely the football toss. Ski ball. What ski ball? What ski ball? Um. What ski ball? Ski ball. There was a ski ball game? Was there even ski ball there? What is ski ball? No, I don't know. Throw the ball, it goes up and goes into a bucket. You mean basketball? Gaga ball. 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 Totally gaga ball. You should pray for the people that teach our children. So, I'm trying to inspire you. Dream big. Shoot for second. Do something great. And, you know, Let's uh, be a blessing in our community, okay? Now look, it's October the 24th, so Halloween falls on a Sunday, so it's the Sunday prior to Halloween, so we need to get busy. Uh, get with uh, people in your, you know, whatever, your sphere of influence, your D group, whatever it is, come up with a good game, build it, make it, dream it, and uh, pick up candy where you go and be prepared. Mark your calendar, start praying that uh, we'll have good weather, and that God will give us a great opportunity to be a blessing to our community. Okay? All right. Let's pray, and then we'll look at God's Word together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that You give us this Word as a gift. You desire for us to know it, to hear from You. Lord, there are things about You that You want us to know, and we want to know. So will You help us, help us this morning to be able to hear the things from you that you want us to understand about you so that we can serve you and be right with you. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear, we pray. Help our hearts to be in a posture of openness towards your word and that we might obey you and that you get all honor, glory, and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Acts 17, now it's been a long time since we study through the book of Acts, and we're here, but let me give you some context to remember what's going on in Acts 17. The Apostle Paul is waiting. He's come to Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come and join him. 
But while he waits, he does some things. This is sort of what we're going to look at this morning is what happens when he arrives, when he arrives at Athens and he sort of is faced with this big opportunity. Now understand that up until this point, Paul has been in all these little fishing villages and he's been in these little rural areas and so on and so forth. And even Corinth is, is nothing compared to Athens. See, this is the New York City or the Washington, D.C. This is the, the central metropolis of, you know, information and knowledge. This is where all the people who are somebody are. Athens, named after the goddess Athena. And so people come to this city to debate and exchange ideas. Truth is the is what they're seeking to discover, and that's sort of the that's what's elevated here. That's what if you if you want to be seen as great in Athens, then you're somebody who is a, a has a brilliant mind for deciphering truth. It's a city of ten thousand people and thirty thousand idols. And so it is a very religious place. There is worship going on in every direction, in every kind, every flavor, every possible, imaginable way is worship everywhere of all these different gods. And there's all this competition about who's right and who's wrong and who's got the, who's got the correct information in order to rightly worship the right God. And so here's what Paul does. Look at with me. Acts 17, I want you to start in verse 16. So he comes to this city. This is sort of his Super Bowl moment, if you will. Now, while Paul waited, that's for Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, let's think about this for a second. The first thing that I want you to see is that Paul comes to this moment. Now, for me and you, when you hear me read this, when you read it, you don't feel the tension. But if you were aware of the geography of the time and you were aware of, you, were, you knew all about first century culture, you would feel tension in this moment because here's Paul, the greatest evangelist and church planner who's ever lived, but this is the biggest moment that he's faced so far. This is where he walks up and he knows this is the mecca of information and truth. And this is where the movers and shakers are. And so what is he going to do? How is he going to present the gospel? Is he going to do the same thing he always does? I mean, what's, how is this going to work out? And the first thing that I want you to see is that Paul's initial response to seeing Athens is grief. He's grieved. And the reason he's grieved is because he knows the, the gospel. And you see, all of us who know the gospel should be grieved when we see people who don't know the gospel. 
He is, look, he sees what's going on and his spirit is provoked within him. Now, that word in the Greek, it, it means literally to be deeply distressed. He's sick to his stomach because he sees people given over to idolatry, very zealous in their worship, and it makes him sick to think all of these people with all of this knowledge and doing all of these things, and it's going to yield them nothing. And it breaks his heart. You see, if we're going to be like Paul, we have to see like Paul. The problem oftentimes that we have is we fail to see like Paul sees. You see, I'm, I'm calling this series four. And the reason I'm calling it four is because we are a church that has been committed to making the community in which we live in a better place. That we want to make a difference in the world around us as a fellowship. So that if we, if we cease to exist, then this community would suffer. And we've done a pretty good job of that. But here's what I know. I know that we have to stop every so often and we have to be reminded of what's the mission. And what are we doing and why are we doing it? Because if we don't continually remind ourselves, we drift. We drift off mission. And we, get, we start thinking in ways we shouldn't think. And we start doing things we shouldn't do. Because here's what I want the world to know. I want the world to know that God doesn't want anything from them. He wants something for them. You see, we as a church, when what we do in the community, everything we do is very intentional in the way in which we do it. It's done in such a way so that people know we don't want anything from you. We just want something for you. And there's a big difference between those two things. And the church hasn't done a, a good job historically with this issue. You see, what happens in most churches is they, they lose the pilgrimage. They stop pilgrimaging together because they get misdirected. And they get misdirected because if you're not constantly reminded of what we're doing and why we're doing it, we start looking inwardly. And we start thinking inwardly. And if we start doing that, then what happens is we think that we're the mission and we're not the mission. God has given us a mission. And we've got to stay focused on what that is. And Paul sees people the way they should be seen. If you have your listening guide, you get your listening guide out. See, the first thing you see is that Paul sees all people as reachable. Reachable. See, you can tell by what Paul does. Paul wouldn't be sick to his stomach 
Paul wouldn't be distressed. Paul wouldn't respond the way he's going to respond if he didn't see people as reachable. See, if he, if he walked into Athens and he saw all these people worshiping all these silly gods, doing all these things they shouldn't do, behaving in ways that are only going to harm them and hurt them, and they're so a million miles away from God and they're so far from God that they're never going to find God, well, then he wouldn't be sick to his stomach. What makes him sick to his stomach is that these are reachable people. He knows the gospel, and he knows that what they need is the gospel. And he knows that the only thing between them and where they need to be is what he's experienced in God. And so he's sick to his stomach because he realizes, hey, this can't be, this can't happen, this can't, we can't be okay with this. See, notice what he does. He reasons in the synagogue like he always does. He goes first to the synagogue with the Jews. But notice the Bible says with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace. See, Paul immediately goes into action. He responds to the grief of what he sees, but he goes into action. And he knows that the gospel message was never meant to stay within the bounds of the church. See, he goes in the synagogue when the people are in the synagogue. And when the people aren't in the synagogue, he goes to where the people are. The people are in the marketplace, so Paul goes to the marketplace. He takes the solution to their problem to where they are. Paul's not in the marketplace because he needs to buy things or because he's in there trying to buy or trade. He's going to the marketplace because that's where the people are. And he knows that in order for people to understand what he knows, he's got to go to where they are. And so he goes there. He takes it to where the people are. That's an important distinction to make. Now drop down to verse 22 and watch what happens. So he presents, he starts preaching and teaching. Well, they accuse, they call him a babbler. They've never heard this, what he's talking about. That, that Jesus came and and died for your sin and offers forgiveness and he's the Messiah that brings salvation. They're like, what is this nut talking about? And so they don't know what to do with him. So what they do is they invite him to the Areopagus. So basically, this is like the Supreme Court in Athens. There's a mountain and up at the top of the mountain, there's this big you know, the mountain's covered with marble and up at the top is this Areopagus and this is where the the most influential people in Athens all meet. And this is where you take all the things that people can't solve or figure out, and you take it up here and you let the, this brain trust up here decide what's true and what's not true. And so Paul now is invited to come and present this gospel message about Jesus to the most influential group of people imaginable. Now, again, it's one thing to go to Athens, but it's another thing to go to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, as you might know it. This is sort of Paul's moment to, to get to address Congress. And there's cameras everywhere, and the lights are on, and all the microphones are stacked up in front of him, and everyone's waiting, and this is his moment. What is Paul going to say? Because if ever words... We're at a premium. It's right now because everyone is watching. There's dead silence. It's like, here we go, Paul. This is the, 
this is the gospel presentation you've trained your whole life for. This is the moment that everything else has been leading up to. you gotta, you got to nail it. It's got to be perfect. So Paul says, he stands up, verse 22, in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, let's think about what Paul says. He is sick to his stomach because he sees people as reachable. And then in these opening verses, just in his opening statement, here's what's clear. Paul wants everyone to know that it's not just that he sees people as reachable, but he sees God as reachable. You see, all the people in Athens, they, it didn't matter which gods they worshipped, whether they were Epicureans or whether they were Stoics and which side of the fence they were on. Listen, they all, but gods are distant gods, faraway gods, detached gods, and that you could never get close to a god because you're a mere mortal. But Paul, Paul understands that, that God's very reachable. And he understands that nobody's beyond his reach. And so he sees these people and he knows the God who has transformed his life. And he realizes that he knows the solution. Now notice, these are people that he's talking to that are as different from him as you could be. I mean, they... They have a totally different belief system. They have different values. They have different priorities. They have different lifestyles. But Paul doesn't have anything in common with the people that he's talking to in his present state. But you know what he does? He finds something positive. He, he opens not with, hey, what are you doing? Paul could have theologically dismantled one by one every single one of their false beliefs. He could have said, you are a bunch of morons. And why would you believe this? And he could have explained how every single one of these things are wrong. And he could have shown from Scripture and from the Old Testament, Paul had the greatest theological mind on earth. But he didn't do that. What he does is he finds common ground. He starts on a positive note. And this is what I want you to see. The church flourishes when the church is seen for what it's for, not for what it's against. One of the problems historically with the church is that the world sees the church and the people in the church only for what they're against. And you know, one of the things that a pandemic exposed is how big of a problem this still is. Because 
When I first started hearing about this coronavirus thing and all the implications, and, you know, I was just trying to figure out what in the world. But here's one thing I knew. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know how it was going to go down. But I knew from the beginning this is going to be one golden opportunity for the gospel. Because people are going to be scared to death and bewildered and frightened and confused. And and I know the solution to that. People who normally would never have ears will have ears to hear. Because people, all the people who think, no, I'm good, everything's fine, I'm living my best life now, I don't want to hear what you have to say, might listen. And you know what? The church fumbled the ball. Christians, primarily on social media, made a fool of themselves. This is what happened. They wanted the world to know all the things that they were against instead of what they were for. Satan set a trap, and most people took it hook, line, and sinker. See, what Paul does is he commends them for being... Listen, he knows that they're completely wrong, but you know what he does? He commends them for for being religious. He commends them for wanting to worship something. You see, the the questions that I think we should ask ourselves are this. Do I want people to know that I'm right or do I want people to know Jesus? Because those are two different things. And what I know, and I guess... Seems so obvious to me, but most American Christians don't get. Convincing someone that you're right almost never ends up in them knowing Jesus. That's not how it works. You know, I want people to know what I'm for. I want them to know what I'm for, not what I'm against. I want them to know that God doesn't want something from them. He wants something for them. You see, that's a whole different way of seeing the world around us. You start seeing people, and everywhere you go, all the people in your neighborhood, the people at your job, the people in your school, all the people in this community, they're reachable. Do you know that? God's reachable. They're reachable. And if you, can, if you can come to them, not with all your list of right information, just come to them. Start positive. See, Paul understands that this moment isn't about winning a debate. It's about life and death. Just like this moment is. It's not winning a debate. It's life and death. It's way bigger than that. Look at verse 24. Then he says, so he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, 
nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. Now, notice Paul moves into this conversation with them by explaining how God has created everything and made everything and that God doesn't dwell in these different temples. He's just trying to give them a general understanding of of what's going on. And it's interesting to me that the verse that has just been this sentence that I haven't been able to get out of my head for a couple of months now is, is in verse 26, where he says, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. See, I want you to think about how throughout the whole Bible, place is important. It's always been important. I want you to think about how when God creates Adam and Eve, what does the Bible say about that in Genesis 2? The Bible says the Lord planted a garden towards the east of Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. It's not some general, basic uh, just explanation, but God puts Eden in a specific place. He makes Adam, and he puts him in a specific place. And it's always been that. See, when God calls his people to the promised land, he's calling them to a promised place. It's a, it's a, a place, not any place, a specific place. And he's calling them on the pilgrimage to certain places on their way to a place. What I'm getting you to see is that it's not just willy-nilly go wherever you want and end up somewhere. But it's, there's a place I want you to go, and there's places you will go on your way to that place because it's always been like that with God. Places matter to God. We miss that. Now look, let's think about it for a second. Think about how the Bible talks about home as a place and how how. When this life is over for the child of God, then what? And how does God explain that? For example, in John chapter 14, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, I will return and receive you unto myself. It's a place. You see, we're not going somewhere. We're going to a place. And when we get to the place, guess what? We're going to have a place in the place. Do you know that? It's a big deal to God. Places matter to God. We think, Tony, what are you talking about? What does this matter? It matters. You see, our mission is to bring a union between people and a real king and a real kingdom. It's a real king, and it's a real kingdom. It's a real place. It's a real person. 
You see, all these false gods out there in the world are not real people and they don't have real places, but the God of the Bible is, and that's important. And what the Bible is saying here is that God orchestrates our place. The dwelling places of men, the sovereign God of the universe does that. See, you just think you live where you live because I don't know what you think. You think maybe it's because that's where you chose to live. Well, that's not how that happened. Do you know you live where you live because God placed you there? That's what the Bible teaches. You worship where you worship because God placed you there. What happened is you didn't realize it, but along the way there were all these little decisions and small events that happened that directed you along the way. Now, you had a plan, but what you didn't know is all the little things in the middle God was directing to get you to where he wants you to be. He did that. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that in the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You see, he's the one. We have these big plans, but you know, as we're, as we're moving in our plan, what we don't realize is God is the one who's orchestrating things. You live where you live because God planted you there. God put you there. And you know what? Your address is important to God. Do you know that? How do I know that your address is important to God? Because you live there. God puts his people in places. He has always done that. And he will always do that. And so where you are and where I am, is because that's where God placed us. And we need to understand that he brought that about one detail at a time. It was all these little baby steps along the way where we just thought things were happening. We thought, you know, I'm here because my parents were here and your parents got here because they thought this and they thought that. But what you didn't know is God was moving things. That that job that you got that moved you here, God was in those details. God did that. God put you there. He gave you that job. The reason, listen, you didn't pick the house you live in. God put you in that house, in that neighborhood. Listen, God is utterly devoted to his mission. Is that true or false? Do you think God is going to uh, ignore any resources at his disposal in the accomplishment of his mission? No. To say that would mean that you believe that God is lackadaisical about his commitments and promises. So how do you think the moment you became his child, everywhere you are placed matters greatly to God? He is absolutely committed to his mission. And guess what the agent of accomplishing the mission is? You. So do you think he's just going to not pay attention to where you're placed, where you live, where you work, where you go to school, where you, you're, that is not at all true. You will never go anywhere or do anything 
as a child of God, apart from his sovereign allowance of that to happen. See, where you live is where God wants you. There's something for you to accomplish where you live. There's someone for you to talk to where you work. There's somebody for you to share with where you go to school. All of those things, all of the places where you are, you've been placed there. It's not an accident. Look at verse 27. Why? Why does God do this? He tells you. So they would seek the Lord. You see, he, he sovereignly puts controls, the boundaries, and the dwelling places of people so that they would seek the Lord and look in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. My goodness. See, we live in a time and a world where people... People have a lot of wacky ideas about a lot of things. And I'm going to try not to hurt your feelings, but it's probably going to happen so you know in advance. So I don't really care what wacky ideas you have about things. Honestly, I really don't. I mean, I have an opinion, but it's just my opinion. So you can believe these some wacky, crazy conspiracy thing about something all you want to that's fine but when you bring it into God then I have a problem with it a big problem when you start to talk about God as if uh, there's this you know this mysterious thing that God's doing that you're trying to figure this thing out and that, you know, evil is trying to trick you and so that you fall into this trap and believe this thing and get all tangled up in this web of whatever it is. Can we just have an honest, intelligent conversation for five seconds? Let me ask you a couple questions. Number one. There are two forces at work in the world, good and evil, correct? Now, these two forces are opposed to one another. Is that correct? Now, at at every millisecond of every day for all of eternity, good is a million times more powerful than evil. Do you understand that? At no point. Will evil ever even begin to threaten the power of good? God is infinitely supreme over anything Satan could ever do, think, or act. You understand that? So to think for one second that you're God's child and that somehow Satan is going to trick you into doing something that God's just going to allow to happen When you got saved, here's what Jesus said would happen. It's better for me to leave. You know why? Because if I leave, I'm going to send one who's better than me being here with you. And his name is the Holy Spirit. And he's going to indwell you. And when my spirit indwells my children, he will guide them into all truth. Do you understand what that means? 
That means that I have his spirit within me and it guides me into all truth. So how exactly is evil going to trick me into believing some, you know, like God is withholding information. He's hiding something from me. Meanwhile, Satan is over here trying to, you know, show this big thing and we're all just going to fall for it if we're not careful. Are you insane? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. Read your Bible. The Spirit of God is within you. He will guide you into all truth. Amen? That's what the Bible says. Now look at what Paul says. He says, in the hopes that they might, look look at verse 27, in the hopes that they might decode the mystery. In the hopes that they might get the treasure map and follow all the steps correctly and look under the right stone and dig the hole, you know, 10 steps to the left, 14 to the right, look for this, look for that, and maybe you'll find where X marks the spot where the treasure is. Look at what the Bible says. In the hopes that they might grope. You know what that means? That means, look, Paul's saying, hey, if you just, you don't know where God is. If you just swing your arm around and reach for him, you'll grab him. Look, he's not far from each of us. He's not hiding. I mean, I'm telling you, man, I am burnt on all this what are we doing? What, what are we doing? The Spirit of God is in you. And you, you see, when I was, when, when, I don't know what happened to you. I'm just telling you, when, when God saved me, when He found me and He saved me, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about God. I didn't, I didn't have a clue. I was talking to a, a, a young dad Friday, and, and we were talking about the gospel. And we were talking about salvation, and I said, listen, let me explain something to you. When I got saved, I didn't know anything about God. I told him, I said, when, I, when God saved me, the exact thing I prayed, I said, God, I don't even know if you're real. Here's what I know. I can't do this any longer. I can't go my way anymore. I don't know who you are. I don't know how you work. I don't know, I don't know anything, but I know Tony's way works no more. I can't do it, and I'm surrendering my life to you. That's all I knew. You don't have to repeat some prayer after me and make sure you say the right code words and get every, And if you don't do this, you can't say. I mean, what are we talking about? The Bible says if they just grope for him, he's right there. You see, here's what I realized. I realized all my life I thought God was so far away. And he was right there, right there. He's not hiding. It's not a mystery. It's not a conspiracy. You don't need to decode the Bible. Please, God. Burn your stupid books about decoding the Bible. Just read the Bible. It's not a code. Just read it. He realizes that 
If they just grope for him, he's right there. You see, God's placed us where we are because the people around us are reachable, because God's reachable. And if, if we'll intersect with them and they just grope for him, they'll grab him, they'll find him. They'll find him. You see, your, your home is an invitation from God to seek God and a commission from God to help others seek God. You see, that's what we're here for. That's what we exist for. You see, wherever you are, God wants you there. Maybe you don't want to be there. Okay, you can talk to God about that. But just be what God wants you to be where you are until He allows you to be somewhere else. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be somewhere else. What's wrong is ignoring the reason you are where you are. That's what's wrong. Look, I want to show you something. Remember that there's this moment in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus is addressing the scribes and the Pharisees, and one of the scribes stands up and says, tell us what is the greatest commandment of all the commandments. And Jesus then responds and says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang the whole law. And then in Mark 12, it's very interesting because I'm going to read this to you. Then a scribe says to him, says, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all understanding and with all our strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Yeah. So this scribe then responds rightly to what Jesus said. Now in a, in a crowd full of people that are against Jesus. So the, the, the question is, what is Jesus going to say to this, this scribe? Everyone's against him. He answered the question, and then this guy agrees with him. And here's Jesus' response. I'll put it on the screen for you. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. He said, you answered right, but you're not far from the kingdom of God. You know what not far from the kingdom of God means? It means that he's in danger. He's in great danger. Not far from the kingdom of God is not in the kingdom of God. Not far from the kingdom of God is lost. And it's very important that we understand this because here's the, here's the big reminder for us. Salvation is not just information. This man has all the correct information. But he's not far from the kingdom of God. You see, if the, if the church is reduced to the mission of just spreading information, 
then we're going to become more like a library than we will like an earth-shattering movement. This is my big concern, or at least one of them. A lot of people think that it's information. See, a lot of people think that you can just stay home and watch on the Internet, and it's the same as coming to church. That's what people think. You know, they go to Walmart. They don't come to church. I see them there. I see them driving down the road, going off, but they don't come to church. You see, if it was just information, then I could just email you once a week, right? I just email it to you. It's just information. But that's not what it is. Because Jesus didn't come bearing information. That's not what he did. Jesus didn't show up and just send us a bunch of information. Hey, here's all the right things you need to know. It's not what he did. You know what Jesus did? He saw me worshiping idols. And he saw me as reachable. So he sent people into my life to begin to show me that he was reachable. And you know what? Jesus, when he saw me worshiping idols, it made him sick to his stomach. But he didn't condemn me or berate me. No. He came to me. He sent people to me. He wanted me to know that he didn't want anything from me. He wanted something for me. You see, I think to a lot of people, I seemed like I was too far gone. Not really reachable. I was very different from church people. I had a different lifestyle than church people. I had different priorities than church people. I had a different upbringing than church people. I didn't fit in with any, any church people. I didn't talk like church people, act like church people, look like church people. That didn't stop Jesus. He saw me as reachable. He wanted me to know that he was reachable. And you know what? He didn't come to me. Here's what happened. One, he didn't come to me with the right information. When I got, when God saved me, it wasn't because I got the right information. You know what happened? For the first time in my life, I realized he loved me. I didn't know anything about him. But I knew he loved me.
We're out here trying to win the world with our right information. And we wonder why nobody's listening. Jesus comes on the scene. Not with information. He becomes flesh. And he lives among us. And that's how we see his glory. He's full of grace and truth. You see, there's got to be truth. But truth won't get anywhere until there's grace. You see, we got to be a people. You got to be a person known for what you're for. Hey, what are you for? Not what are you against? Who are you for? Before people, before Jesus. Here's the thing. You know what happened? God was for you. And so he sent people to you. And then he captured you so that you could then be for other people. That's how that goes. And so the thing is, is that it's not like we, God's for us, and then we come into the kingdom, and then now everything changes. No, the mission just keeps going. We come in because God's for us, and then when we're in, the mission is to let people know that God's for them. We got to be for our community. We got to be for our neighbors. We got to be for the people that are in our lives. They're reachable. God's not far away. And here's the thing all they got to do is grope for Him. They don't need a theology lecture, they just need to grope for Him. I've seen so many lives changed because somebody just groped for Jesus. They just swung their, they didn't even know what they were doing. And he's right there. He's right there. You're not where you are on accident. But listen, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Don't wait. Just don't sit around and put off till tomorrow what needs to be done today. Most of us were in this room together a week ago. And then we'll be back together a week from now. And you know what? From last Sunday morning to now, there's 10,080 less minutes that you have than you had last week. And there'll be 10,080 less minutes between now and next Sunday morning. God put you where you are to be for Him. And to be for Him is to be for people, to be for your community. Make a difference. Let people know God's not far. He's right there. It's okay. It's okay if you don't know. It's okay if you don't understand. It's okay if you don't look like me or dress like me or talk like me or vote like me or think like me. It doesn't matter. It's okay. He loves you. He loves you. This is why we exist. If we don't see our neighbors as Jesus sees them, we're never going to love them like Jesus loves them. Never. 
Hey, let's make sure we don't drift off mission. Let's make sure as a people, we stay focused on what we're for. Thank God he saw me and you as reachable. If you're here this morning and you don't know God, I just want you to know he loves you. And I'm sure there's a lot of things you don't know about God. There's still things I don't know about God. You'll figure a lot of them out. But here's what you need to know. He loves you. You're going to leave here and go somewhere. And wherever you go, wherever your place is, God put you there. Look around. Who's around you? Who lives by you? Who works by you? Who studies by you? Who? Every year when school starts, I think, every saved teenager that goes to school, you think the desk you sit in just randomly happened? You think that happened? And you say, but no, Tony, they're, they're organized alphabetically. You think that just happened? That student that's next to you on this side, that's next to you on this side, that's behind you, God put you there for them. He is so committed to his mission, he would never overlook any detail in accomplishing it. Let's stand and bow our heads.